what is going to be effective technology to use in 2024 when we're supporting a presidential, when we're supporting coordinated campaigns, when we're supporting getting Democrats elected up and down the ballot. For us, 2023 is the year to build those things. We've been really focused on understanding 2022, what worked and what didn't, and moving very quickly. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Arthur Thompson. He's currently the Chief Technology Officer at the Democratic National Committee, or DNC. Arthur came to the DNC after a successful stretch as a technologist at Wayfair, where he spent over 10 years during their rapid growth and ended up managing more than 1,000 people heading up their global operations engineering. After some time as CTO at Jobcase, Arthur came to the DNC in 2021 as head of engineering and succeeded Nell Thomas as CTO at the end of 2022. We had a lot to talk about, and if you're interested in democratic political technology, you will want to listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Arthur, CTO at the DNC. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Arthur, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. Thank you for having me today. My name is Arthur Thompson, and I am the CTO of the DNC. I have been in this role since December of last year, so I just passed the three-month mark. I've been with the DNC for about a year and a half. I joined in August of 2021 as the head of engineering for about two months, I wore the interim chief security officer hat. And uh, as of December, yeah, I'm the new CTO of the DNC. That is a, a lot of roles in a short time at a high level for an important organization in American politics. <laughs> I'm definitely fascinated to hear your story of how you got there. Tell me a little bit about where you grew up and your education and your beginning employment after that. Yeah. It's a lot of roles in a short span of time, which is maybe atypical for a lot of tech companies. But interestingly, I think it's not so atypical for political work where uh, you do what you got to do when you got to do it. I grew up in rural Virginia. I grew up in coal country. That's a little bit of, I think, where my focus on democratic politics really started. I grew up in coal country. It was a democratic stronghold for most of my early life. And um, I saw that really shift during my lifetime. Labor is what really drove Democrats to electoral success in the area where I grew up. Um, but as coal mining as an industry started to decline, and really the coal unions lost power, a lot of that base really slipped away. I'm from beautiful Tazewell County, Virginia. Went to 
my undergrad in Eastern Virginia at the College of William and Mary, where a lot of my real uh, kind of interest in, in political engagement took off. I worked in a lot of very progressive organizations there and actually tried to register to vote in the city of Williamsburg, where William and Mary was, and was denied the right to register there, um, which started a little bit of my focus into politics in a very roundabout uh, way. On what basis? <laughs> the registrar at the time was denying students the right to vote. The basis I was given was because I did not own property in the city of Williamsburg. Um, the town, the city of Williamsburg is a very interesting place. It's um, half students from the college, um, half full-time residents, and then an equal number of tourists that are coming through at any given time to see Colonial Williamsburg or to go to Bush Gardens. My take was always there was, there was a lot of concern around students taking over city council. I sued the city. I still did not <laughs> win the right to vote. But what I did jump into was helping to support some students who are running for city council seats. Someone else told me a different angle on this story. I'm trying to remember who that was. That's, in, that's so interesting. Yeah, it was a very frustrating experience for a lot of students who wanted to be very engaged in local politics and to be able to make the, the city a better place and were not allowed to do that. Well, hang on. You, so you were majoring in computer science, I assume. That's right. Yeah, I was majoring in computer science. I've majored in computer science from 1984 to 88. What do you learn these days or back when you did that? What, what's the main thrust of a degree at William & Mary? What sort of courses and things? Yeah, William & Mary's computer science program is still, I think, a, a pretty traditionally focused program of understanding not just software engineering, but the actual practical uses of, um, of engineering combined with a core computer science education around algorithms and systems of design, whether that's in object-oriented programming, which was really a big focus when I was there. Computer science was a very small program at William Mary. It's a liberal arts school traditionally. I think my graduating class had 12 people majoring in computer science. I think the benefit for me was having experience into a bunch of other areas of curriculum outside of computer science that were, that were uh, really interesting and helped kind of foster political thinking as well. Yeah. Did you enjoy the major? I did. I went to a liberal arts school thinking I'd be a liberal arts major. The thing that was most satisfying to me was not writing an essay. It was not doing a math proof. It was not creative writing. It was building things. And I think that chance to really like build things that solve actual problems that people face, it was a really interesting thing. And, and that was really what was so engaging to me and, and got me really thinking about that shift. And I, I jumped really, really headfirst into uh, computer science and software engineering with that. What was your first experience in politics outside of the, that city of your college? <laughs> yeah. I'll actually start with one while still on that, that college. One of the city council races I helped on was a student that was running, a man by the name of David Sievers, who ran a really, really excellent campaign. But one of the things we deployed for the first time in that campaign is we had poll observers sitting at all the polling locations that were reporting back using Google Sheets on who had turned out to vote. So what we were doing at the time, Google Sheets had just launched in beta a few months prior, I think. We were actually creating a real live tracking system of understanding who had turned out to vote and were then able to run a targeted get out the vote campaign and actually drive out support. It was, it was such a fascinating idea that technology could be used 
in this way and to be able to to really drive electoral outcomes at so, such a focused level of data. My first experience outside of outside of William Mary was in 2008 on the Obama campaign in, in rural Virginia. I worked as a full-time organizer through summer and fall of 2008 on the Obama campaign. And what was really interesting is these, a lot of these ideas that we had kind of played around with with Google Sheets and trying to develop this voter level understanding of where folks stood on our candidate, we applied at a national level on the Obama campaign. It was just a really, really just staggering leap forward to me from the 2004 volunteer experience on Kerry to this like really technology driven experience working on the Obama campaign in 2008. So in 2008, I, I was back in my hometown as an organizer, pulling people together to turn out for President Barack Obama and Vice President Biden, who both spoke in the area, both really, I think, powerful messages for the area and the community. And I just had this very fundamental belief. It was such an important role at the time to be able to to, to help amplify that message in a way that I thought would be so beneficial for the town I grew up in, the community I grew up in, the county I grew up in, and to do what I, whatever I could to help help get them elected. You spent a little over a decade adding up as global head of operations engineering at Wayfair. What is Wayfair? What, and tell me about your career there. What were you up to? Yeah, Wayfair is an online home goods retailer. When I joined, it was still very much a startup. And when I left, it was a Fortune 500 company. Over my time there, I led the e-commerce team. I managed the operations technology teams. These are teams of about a thousand people each. I ever saw, but when I joined, it was it was as an engineer, and, and that's where I spent probably my first five years. There was in developing the core technology that that drove Wayfair to become a five hundred million dollar business, and then a billion dollar business, and and onwards to a ten billion dollar business. I worked a lot on the web platform that powers Wayfair, search platforms. It was a really interesting experience there. Really incredible place to grow and to learn. I have just the utmost respect for the organization. One of the really profound things that Wayfair as an organization did and, and still does is I think it, it brings everybody, regardless of their role, into real decision-making in the business itself and a real deep understanding of how the business worked. It was a very special, very exciting time to be on these on, on some of these teams and to help guide through these periods of just real big growth and real big scale. What role do you think the tech played in that growth? A lot. Uh, tech for Wayfair is a strategic lever. It's, it's really what helps achieve scale and solves big problems as a real differentiator. For example, I worked in the supply chain space. We're building these multi-million square foot warehouses. We're building proprietary distribution networks through the US. We're building ocean freight systems and local consolidation uh, structures, local to factories. And really solving those problems, software is the thing that can really conquer really hard problems like those at scale really quickly. So there were there were periods where Wayfair was growing basically 40% year over year for multiple years, which meant the company was doubling in terms of revenue, in terms of people. And the only thing that I think really allowed allowed the company to stay in front of that growth and to propel that growth was smart deployment of technology. It's really 
core to the founders, really core to every role there. When I joined, everyone wrote SQL, everyone knew SQL. That was a requirement of the job. But I think this really deep technical lens, this deep quantitative lens on, on everything the company did was a big driver for its growth. They're hiring a lot of engineers over this time, but you're the one that's ending up running different parts of it and kind of rising up in the ranks. What did you think it was about you that you kept having leadership roles like that? Wayfair does a great job of giving people great opportunities to grow and, and to step up and be stretched in ways that they'll feel like pretty deeply uncomfortable for some amount of time. I mean, I think I was given a few of those opportunities. But one of the things I hope to bring to any role, whether that was at Wayfair or here, is thinking about technology through a like people lens. And really, I think some of the things that allowed Wayfair to scale really quickly were, how do you design a technology system that allows a lot of people to ramp up on it very quickly, to understand it, and to build in parallel on it? That's a lot of the focus that I brought to my teams was, you can't just go off and hire hundreds of engineers and throw them at an architecture. And you can't just design an architecture that will presumably support hundreds of engineers without a real motivating business reason behind it and a business need behind it. And bringing all those together is the lens that I brought, brought to my teams there. We did some great work. I'm, I'm very proud of the work that my teams did while I was at Wayfair. Did it make you want to be an entrepreneur CEO type? <laughs> I think a, a great thing about Wayfair is that it challenged all of its leaders in every function to think like a business owner and to have real ownership over everything what you did. I think in any role, I, I want to be in a place where we can use technology to to solve hard problems. But I think it's also exciting to be in the middle of, hey, let's write out the strategy that's going to solve these hard problems or predict where the problems will be in the future. So I think from that lens, yeah. Do you ever have a situation where uh, you had the question of whether to rebuild part of something from scratch versus, you know, re-engineer it. it seems like a very common thing when I talk to people in political tech. They have application. It's been out there for a number of years. It has a fair amount of technical debt. It was built as a prototype, but it turned into, you know, it started getting used. So it it uh, became the, the application. Uh, and then engineers often want to start again, clean, maybe a different tech stack that they prefer. Do you ever face that within Wayfair or elsewhere? I think every every engineering leader faces that. And one of the strongest things you can do as an engineering leader is resisting that temptation to tear down and start from scratch. In most cases, this is not every case, but most cases, the reason things are complex, the reason things are messy, the reason things are hard to understand if you're an engineer just coming into a space there's often challenges that have been solved by that tech stack through hard work and discovery of actually using the thing. And I think what the temptation a lot of engineers have is to throw it out and start from scratch. But by doing so, you actually throw away all of the learnings that you've had that went into that product or went into that software system. All of the bug fixes, all of the edge cases, those things get thrown away. That's why most rebuilds, I believe, are the ones that you know, an ambitious engineer says, we can rebuild this thing from six months and it'll be so much better. Six months later, you find yourself six months away from being done from where you thought you would be. I think there's always a real temptation there. There are kind of two big, two big reasons you would want to do a replatform. For me, it's, it's an existential risk to not do it, meaning you're going to slow yourself down so much by not iterating on the underlying platform or coming up with a new platform that can move much faster that 
that you're going to cripple your business goals or you're going to hurt your business goals. The other reason I think is if there's a real step function change in how fast you can you can really iterate and move on adding new features or, or bringing on new people. So I think in most cases, the right answer is find the ways to make the thing better and to find ways to replace things incrementally. The, the Big Bang piece is very risky. There's always the... I think back on the example of, of Netscape, which attempted to do this, I think it was Netscape 5 or 6, and ended up losing all of their market share in the late 90s to, to Internet Explorer because they, they attempted to do just this. They tried to tear it all down, rebuild it. It was a business-destroying decision for them. I'm always very wary of, of rebuild efforts. Yeah. After a decade at Wayfair, it's all, I have to ask you, why did you leave if you, you had such a great experience there? What was going on that you decided to move on? I had had a tremendous run at Wayfair. I was very close with both the founders. I'd worked with so, so many hundreds or thousands of really talented people. And as I thought about where my areas were for growth, I realized that I needed to try something else in a new system in order to to push myself in some new ways, but also I think to learn and to continue learning into a new area. So in early 2020, I took on my first role as CTO, which was at a company called Jobcase. Jobcase was and is attempting to build something really special. We were working on a platform that was focused on worker empowerment, but not for white collar workers in a way that maybe LinkedIn or other systems are, but really focused on America's frontline workers, America's blue collar workers, those that haven't really, in my eyes, benefited from some of the advancements in in technology as much as white collar workers have. So what is Jobcase? Jobcase is a, uh, it's a way to get a job, but it's also a way to find support for your job. For me, the, the real you know, interest in this organization and, and in this problem space was it was a clever use of technology. It was a use of technology to help solve a hard societal problem in a way that was very beneficial for the users. And in a way that, frankly, a lot of other social media platforms aren't beneficial for their users or they're just you know, a play for, for getting your, your data or your information, really driving towards better outcomes for, for its users. Sounds like a pretty interesting place. Did you enjoy that time? I did. It, it's based out of, out of Cambridge, Massachusetts, probably about half a mile from my house. Incredibly, incredibly talented, smart team there. I think the big surprise for me, the the first day I joined was the day of the first diagnosed case of COVID in the United States. And and really that that marked my tenure at 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 Jobcase very considerably. We went fully remote within six weeks of me joining. And our revenue model was... um, thrown into some chaos. We had to, we had to rapidly, <laughs> rapidly change plans multiple times because it wasn't just that employers weren't hiring or people weren't looking for jobs or people were looking for jobs at a higher rate. It's that basically the job market really froze up. I'm very proud of the work we did during very hard times and very unpredictable times. But COVID was definitely a big factor in, in every decision we made uh, over the course of my uh, year and a half there. How do you land at the DNC? One of the people that I, I'd worked really hard to hire at Wayfair in 2019 announced he was leaving to go to the DNC. Who was that? It was a fellow by the name of Chris Concepcion, who is now, um, he's the head of engineering for the Obama Foundation. I've talked to him, yes, on this podcast. 
Chris is wonderful. Chris sent his goodbye email announcing he was headed to the DNC. And I remember responding back to him that that is the coolest job I think I've ever heard of based on how he had, how he had framed it in his, his goodbye note. And I expressed just how jealous I was of him. Fast forward a couple of years, the head of engineering position came open and Chris had reached out on some platforms that the, the role was coming open. And the idea just got lodged in my brain and I couldn't I couldn't get it out. This idea that like technology could be used to driving better outcomes for all of the things that the Democratic Party stands for all in one go. It was just a very um it was just such a fascinating, such an enthralling idea that I couldn't get it out of my brain. Um I spoke with Chris, I further could not get it out of my brain. I spoke with Nell, the previous CTO could and it was just lodged lodged in there. And at that point I was just hooked. I think the challenges of what the DNC was trying to do, the ambitions of what the DNC is trying to do, the reach of what the DNC is trying to do um, were just so powerful and so interesting. I cannot get my brain off of this idea once I'd had conversations with them. What were they trying to do that you found so intriguing? To me, it's this idea that the DNC sits at a very unique place in the democratic ecosystem and that it can build something once can build it well, can build it centrally, and it can solve problems for literally 10,000 plus campaigns all at the same time. And the idea that there's this little organization of about 60, 60 technologists that were basically trying to generate an incredible amount of data that could help power any campaign with the same information that the presidential had just used the year before. So if you were running for school board, you would have the same powerful information to reach out to voters that that the presidential campaign had in 2020. It was just such an interesting idea and such leverage of what the work was. Super interesting to me. The DNC for many years had the reputation of organizational challenge in many areas that they had trouble holding on to people over time, that they made mistakes in technology. And frankly, they had a very small team and, you know, I'm going back a ways, but, but they, and they tried to tackle things in odd ways. And for me, who had worked in a company outside of that space, I often uh, was relieved that I wasn't trying to build tech over there, but that I could do it in the private world with a lot fewer constraints, although there were lots of challenges from that vantage point also. What did you discover when you got there? And I, I understand, you know, there's kind of been a sequence of different CTOs who had made substantial changes over time, but what did you discover when you actually got there about the organization as a place to work and a place to build technology? I think there was something to put it kind of bluntly, which is pretty fundamentally broken around the way that DNC tech was asked to build technology for a long time. So in most private organizations, there aren't the same worries as in politics around funding. There's a there's a generally stable amount of funding and there's generally stable resourcing. But with the DNC for a long time, the technology, it was a very small team that was asked to do very heavy lifting and asked to take on way too much. 
I think it's very important to thank and applaud everyone that that was in DNC Tech and has been in DNC Tech historically for for really carrying that lift. But there's something that's really hard about building technology that way. When you build something and then you put it down, or those people move on, or the small team moves on to another thing, that thing stops functioning after not very long, whether that's bit rot or whether that's the actual needs of that technology change. It's a very hard way to 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 build technologies, to put it down and then try to pick it up four years later when the next presidential spins up. So the real fundamental shift that has happened over the last five, six, seven years, dating back to Chair Perez's time here, to Rafi's time here, was to build consistent funding for technology that doesn't force us to put it down or doesn't force us to shrink the team after a presidential in a way that that makes that kind of building really hard. So we've been able to to keep a very strong staff after 2020, after 22, and looking ahead to 24, um, so that when we need to build something, we're not just scrambling to do it six months before an election or a year before an election, that we're building essentially compounding wins. The things that we build today, we'll build on six months from now, and we'll build on those six months later in a way that isn't a set of really like disjoint products or a set of unsupported products that... Well, we don't have a massive portfolio. We have things that are very well established and are, we think are very effective at solving the problems they set out to solve. When I first got into computers and campaigns, as they used to say, political tech, in the late 80s, a campaign would have maybe one piece of software that did a lot of different things at a much smaller scale. It was pre-internet. It was pre-analytics in many regards. It was pre-national voter file. It was a totally different world. It wasn't software as a service or anything like that. Over time, the complexity of what campaigns need, depending on the level, it's gotten much bigger. There's just much more opportunities for lots of organizations to bring different kinds of technology to it, whether it's commercial or dedicated to the political space. And now there's an ecosystem that's developed with companies of different sizes, nonprofits, um, all working external to the party, and then things that come from the party itself and other very party-dedicated types of organizations. How do you see that sort of political tech progressive ecosystem and the role of the DNC in it? Well, I think it's wonderful, first of all. I think there's a lot of types of technology that are frankly, just very hard to build um, given constraints around DNC and and funding that a for-profit company is probably the best place to do it. I think our role in it is, it's really the steward, we're the stewards of data, of democratic data. We're very proud to say that we are able to stop a lot of the the boom-bust cycle of data that a lot of campaigns went through in in those times where campaigns would generate a tremendous amount of insights and data around voters deployed for election day, and then the data might go away or the data might go sit on a, a hard drive somewhere. What we've really strived to do is to create a place where all of that interesting data that's generated during campaigns, whether that's from tools we've built, whether that's from vendor tools that are built on top of the national voter file, whether those are contact tools or on phone calls or text messages or digital ad spend or fundraising, that those things all come back 
and they all come back in a standardized way and they come back in a way that can be archived and protected and used in future cycles to have this really long-term longitudinal view of every voter and how they interacted with with every campaign. I think that's that's a little bit of our, our core value prop is that we are we are the organization that that is there cycle in in the cycle in the next cycle and the next cycle after that and what we can do and what we can offer is consistency and availability um, and utility of of all of this really interesting data about voters. How do you think the rest of the ecosystem outside of the DNC is working in terms of communicating that data to you in terms of providing good tools for campaigns and other political organizations, state, you know, party committees and so on, like from your vantage point, how are we doing and what could we be doing better? I think it's a great question. Fortunately, a lot of our incentives are aligned between a lot of these organizations and and vendors that are building interesting tools out there to talk to voters or understand voters and what we at the DNC doing that we are not at the DNC building voter contact tools. We're not building a lot of the things that that the vendors out there are doing. But at the same time, what we can offer to those vendors is a core place to have their data interact with other organizations' data in a way that's interesting for, for campaigns and actually is a selling point, I think, for a lot of those vendors is that we can really centralize that data in a way that's that's beneficial for the, for the vendor. I had a conversation with Mike Podhorzer the other day about... And I just mentioned Van briefly, and his quick reaction to it was he wished that labor or the party had built their own tool because the way the path was for Van in the private world, he doesn't trust the ownership at this point. And I'm not sure that he has good reason to do that, but that's not an uncommon thing that you might hear as private enterprise is different than than something funded by labor or funding by DNC. Why shouldn't all tech for politics be built within political organizations or should it? I don't believe a lot of tech should be built within the political organizations because I think there is a, well, I, I think incredibly highly of my team today and tomorrow. I don't want to put, I think in a lot of ways, a, a for-profit organization is probably the right place, cycle in, cycle out, that can support those systems better. The other benefit is I think there's always a risk that groups in labor or um, or other nonprofits start working in very different systems than those in politics. I think there's a there's a big benefit for how Van is leveraged in that there are generations of organizers who know Van and have, have worked in it and have, have won lots of hard-fought campaigns, whether that is for nonprofits or whether that's for, for campaigns or, or hard-side groups in general. So I think there's a benefit that a tool like Van can be deployed in, in both soft-side and hard-side scenarios and the data can be used in a really or like consistent way within Van to to be leveraged through DDX or other other ways to make that data more useful or enrich that data. So, while there's always risk to core party infrastructure being at the whims of the market, the quote unquote market, and needing to drive a profit, I think there are also some real clear benefits, structural benefits that we get from. Um, from how Van is situated today for the party. Does it say anything about the state of democratic data that there are now so many other 
democratic data entities out there, whether they're for-profit ones or nonprofit ones that kind of satellite the same data that you're building or that is built on the soft side? I am a tech and data guy through and through. So to me, the more data, the better. I think it speaks to the just the recognition from campaigns that data is a core part of what it takes to win elections. I think that's a big piece of it. The need for campaigns to understand everything from, you know, not just knocking on a door to talk to a voter, but how should I spend my money on Instagram ads? Or should I do TikTok ads? Or should I do Google ads? Or how how do I think about text-based fundraising? I think the problems that face campaigns have gotten harder and more challenging and require a much more diverse set of skills where I think data can actually lead and guide in a way that that helps campaigns really optimize over time. Do you have any sense of how what we do with data and tech compares to what the Republicans do? We try not to spend too much time just looking over our shoulder because I think there are some very different structural reasons for the reasons we do what we do and, and why Republicans do what they do. I think we've got a benefit that our data is a lot less disjoint than a lot of Republican data, where there's less of kind of a single interface, like what the DNC is able to build and what we provide for campaigns internally. Typically, Republicans are thought of to be more hierarchical and and can force kind of more streamlining and more order and more kind of singular decision-making. In this case, actually, I think on the... Democrats' side, we have some structural advantages to how we've kept data and how we've really had the party help shepherd and steward that really centrally more than the Republican side. When you first came over to DNC as director of engineering, what absorbed your time? What did you have to work on? I think to Nell and Rafi's credit, very much so, that a lot of the heavy lift of replatforming and modernizing the tech stack, a lot of that heavy lift had been done. And I, I feel just incredibly thankful for that. The team had already embarked on this really big mission to move from an old data warehouse technology called Vertica to Google BigQuery, which is a very prescient move. I think there's a lot of other organizations that are also moving towards BigQuery for a lot of the same reasons that we did. We had modernized a lot of our cybersecurity practices. We had deprecated a bunch of our old style of web hosting and colo centers. And a lot of that lift had been done, which I feel very fortunate because I was able to jump in really into the like the meat of the problems and and to spend spend a bunch of time with state parties early on and, and really understanding the dynamics, not just from a campaign perspective, but all of the the different layers of party apparatus that help support electoral success. So it's been a lot of time with our partners at state parties and with the ASDC, spent a lot of time understanding kind of the vendor ecosystem to be able to make smart decisions. Because a lot of what I think we do at the DNC isn't just making decisions and building technology. It's it's understanding what is the landscape out there and how do we most effectively deploy technology or shape technology decisions in a way that that um, it's beneficial for, the, uh, for Democrats up and down the ticket. There's always been that I've been aware of kind of a push and pull between the DNC and state parties about around data and data ownership and swap agreements and all kinds of things like that. What have you learned about that? And for an outsider that's interested in political tech on our side, can you explain 
who owns what and how does that all work at all? Sure. Maybe the crown jewel of democratic data is the national voter file. This is something the DNC is the maintainer of. The data today comes from individual states. Often a secretary of state's office will produce a database of all of their voters and often vote history, what elections a voter turn out to. We get all this information. We standardize it into a single schema. We do a lot of data integrity checks to make sure that voters are not being lost between updates from a state. And we create an incredibly powerful database with our own data, external data sources that we've purchased, and the state-level data into what we call the national voter file. This is something that's only come together in the last 20 years. Prior to that, states were really in control of their own voter file, and that was very disjoint. The amount of information that a state might have, the messiness of the data, and the amount of effort that states really went to to, to maintain that. I think there was a, a very positive movement within the party over the last couple of decades. This realization that our data is better together in ways that we can be more open between state and federal, between state parties and, and the DNC. I think we just built a tremendous amount of mutual trust between the two and a realization that the efforts of state parties and, and DNC are pointed in the same direction and are really beneficial to both. So I think our relationship is at, at a, a very good place today. And I think both state parties and, and the DNC are, are working continually on, on how to make this stuff better together. It's not just a push and pull. It's not a zero-sum game between state parties and the DNC. It's the fact that the DNC can help build something centrally that benefits all state parties and can do some things better centrally. In some ways, it's best left to state parties to, to deal with on their own. I think a rationalization of that and a clear-eyed trusting conversation has been very, very helpful for that dynamic. Sometimes I hear, like I was talking to Senator Doug Jones, former Senator Doug Jones recently, and he said that when he went to run in Alabama, that the state party and their data was just not up to speed. It was way less useful than what you would find in another state. I have no way to evaluate that, but there's a initiative that he's working on down there to try to reform data through the South. Why would there be poor data in some states versus good data in others? And what can be done about that? There could be a bunch of reasons for that. Some could come from what is the quality of the actual file that we're getting from a secretary of state's office. I've seen files that we've gotten at the DNC or state parties have gotten where there are literal Excel errors printed in the voter file itself. There's a supply chain of this data that goes through some people that aren't data practitioners, and there's definitely a lossiness of data there. So it could start actually at the source of where this data comes in, and there's a little bit of a garbage in, garbage out thing where I think we can make the data as good as we can get it, but there's there's probably an upper limit to how much it can be cleaned reasonably. That varies a lot by state. I think the other area is investing in state-level data operations and doing that on an ongoing basis. That's really important for the ecosystem. And fostering a community of data practitioners who are deployed at the state level but are sharing best practices across states has been really important, something we we try to foster a lot at the DNC. We run regular trainings. We work with state parties to help 
find great people that can fill this role at a state level and be a, a data director or a voter file manager that can really be in the weeds of the of the problem. I think there's a real limit that the DNC has is that we it's a real risk if the DNC tries to do everything around data because a lot of data it's more important locally or there's there's local nuance that we would otherwise miss. I want to avoid the temptation that the DNC does everything with data. I think we can build a great foundation, we can identify commonalities, but I think we've also got to do it in partnership where we can support great smart data people operating at a state or or campaign level. I remember talking to one of your predecessors about recommendations or sort of a software shop where people could go to the DNC and figure out what tech is available for them, whether it's from the DNC or from other vendors. Is there something like that right now? If someone's running a state house campaign or a congressional campaign or campaign at any level that's democratic, what is the source of good information about what should they be using and what they could get from the party, whether it's in the state or nationally? There's a couple layers to that. One is what are the kind of practically useful building blocks of, hey, you need a campaign website. What do you do? You need a, a place to store your data. We at the DNC will provide some standards around what good looks like in those cases. But given how many interesting vendors have popped up in the space, we don't provide a single recommendation around like, here's who you should go through for your website. We try to build in in some advice around like, what are the things to look for and what are some of the standards there? Um, because there's there's a lot of great texting tools out there. There's a lot of great website tools out there. And we believe diversity of that marketplace is, is really helpful and important. One of the things we are very, I think, much more opinionated on is cybersecurity. That's where we're going to spend a lot of time this year, I think, coming up with more standards around what we would expect campaigns to adhere to or where vendors might fall short and finding more ways to give that information out to state parties to then then send out to campaigns. Increased risk of cybersecurity across all of our partners or campaigns it's a very it's something that keeps me up at night and finding ways that that we can be a place that maybe thinks through some of these things centrally and shares that information out is a big area to invest in this year. The DNC is really ultimately responsible for the presidential campaign for supporting particularly an incumbent president but also uh, the nominee of the party it's a very big role there where are you in getting ready for the next presidential and what are the big challenges (laughs) we know there's going to be an election in november of next year where there will be a democratic candidate and that is the goal line that we are we are working towards we know we're going to work with a presidential team it's our responsibility to really build infrastructure that helps the party's nominee build a great data operation, build a great cybersecurity operation, build a great technology operation, make smart vendor choices. Our role is really helping to build up the infrastructure that a campaign team can really execute on. We're thinking a lot about this right now in terms of how we planned out 2023 heading into 2024. Most political organizations spin up really fast and, and scale up really fast and then figure out how to deploy a bunch of people and deploy a bunch of money really quickly. Our work at DNC Tech is is fundamentally different than that. We are building software products. We're building data products. We are really in 2023 treating this as a year to build for the DNC. There are no off years, but in these odd years for us, actually, it's in some ways 2023 is more important than 2024 because this is our year to actually like hit some pretty aggressive milestones in terms of advancing our software and data. 
and using this year to really experiment and understand what is going to be effective technology to use in 2024 when we're supporting a presidential, when we're supporting coordinated campaigns, when we're supporting getting Democrats elected up and down the ballot. For us, 2023 is the year to build those things. We've been really focused on understanding 2022, what worked and what didn't, and moving very quickly through uh, through this year. What worked and what didn't? One of our big successes in 2022 was responsiveness to a very rapidly changing political climate. We produced a lot of voter level models, and we 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 acquired a lot of voter level models last year that are effectively predicting at a voter level what is that person's likelihood of, say, turning out to vote in a presidential year, or turning out to vote in a midterm year, or their support of women's right to choose, or their support of gun control laws. So we we had about 75 unique scores last year. I think one of the things we're really proud of is, for example, when the Dobbs decision came out, it came out on a Friday. On Monday, the very next business day, three days later, we were able to get our choice model or choice score out to any campaign that wanted to use it. So three days later, we were able to get the score out. And what we saw in November is voters who who prioritized choice as an issue turned out at a very, very high rate to vote in the election and to vote for Democrats. So what we're able to do is, is I think, by having a very kind of nimble team, but also a team that can build really deep, complex data products or, or help vet out what other vendors do, we're able to turn this external event into something that was really actionable for campaigns. Why wouldn't you have had that in advance? Like it, it, it sounds like at first blush, like three days later, but it seems like we knew that was coming. What took time? What had to be done? There's a prioritization of everything we do. We are not going to launch everything at the same time. For us, what we, you know, we we didn't just go out and and get the score and and get it implemented in all of our systems in three days. It was something that we had thought about in advance. But what we're able to do is really shuffle our own internal priorities to adapt to the needs externally. So we knew this was going to come in and we're able to to really rapidly change pace and and implement this and, and shuffle our own focus around in order to make the top priorities happen. You mentioned, uh, I think when talking about Wayfair, about how much sort of the human side of this is important in engineering. At the DNC with a decent sized tech staff, but not nearly the size that you were contending with before, it's still extremely important, I think, to attract and retain talent and have a good culture and have people motivated to work together and have the people that are the best that you could have under those circumstances. How do you think about that aspect of running a tech operation at the DNC? The most important differentiator for any organization, success or failure, is the people on the team and and the the caliber of that team, the experience of that team, the diversity of that team, the diversity of experiences and backgrounds that comes together to make smart decisions moving forward. It's so important. So I worry and think a lot about how do we build a culture and a team that keeps people around. I mean, to me, the the most important thing, the most important differentiator for why someone will choose to stay and make a long go of any role is, 
are you solving satisfying hard problems in a culture that's enjoyable to be in and to solve those problems in? And I think fortunately for the DNC, I think we are solving for our staff just among the most important kind of challenges and important topics that people care about. Those are the things that we're solving on any given day. And I think that's why people come to the DNC. It's why I came to the DNC. I think it's why we've got folks on the team who have been here for eight, nine years at this point that they have chosen to make a really long effort at the DNC is that the problems we solve are are, are the things that, that people are, from a moral perspective or from a mission perspective, really important and really satisfying to to do what we can to solve them and to deploy technology to try to solve those things. Engineers, as you're well aware, sometimes have opportunities to work at very high paid rates in the private world to have potentially a share in the upside of a company, stock and options and things like that. Are you able to pay people market wages? Are they making a sort of a donation to work there? How do you find people who have these kind of talents that are willing to stick around? That's a great question. If you're comparing DNC to nonprofit tech jobs or political tech jobs, we're able to be very competitive. But we're not able to be, just to put it bluntly, like we're not able to be competitive with what Apple or Google or Amazon or, or many big tech organizations are paying. I think that inspires for people that are really interested in the work we do. I, I think we pay well enough to live comfortably in these roles, but also with the acknowledgement that I think the satisfaction and the equity you're getting from this job are from the results of, of what you do. And I think it's that day-to-day satisfaction. It's that long-term satisfaction to look back on a role whenever anybody leaves this organization and be very proud of the outcomes you drove in a way that I think will demolish the like outcomes of a for-profit company in, in most scenarios. I think from a satisfaction perspective and from a like, did I spend my time wisely perspective? Our work is is just hugely important. I, I think it's very satisfying from that perspective. It's rare that I've I don't know that I've talked to anybody who's who's left the DNC that has deep regrets over spending their time fighting these challenges. So we've talked mostly about your role sort of looking inward at at the tech and your team. But I would think that there's an aspect to your role, which is dealing with and be, being one of the leaders of the organization more broadly, dealing with the CEO, dealing with other heads of departments. They have needs in technology. Choices that might be made, even political ones, might be influenced by what can be done. Uh, in technology, just like when you were at Wayfair, when you talked about like being incorporated into the business of the business, not just the tech sort of as a separate thing, it, it's impossible to do that well. Tell me about that aspect of your job and how's that going? Yeah, I think it's incredibly important that technology is in the DNA of more and more decisions that the DNC makes over time. Data will be a compass to help us make smarter decisions and to deploy resources more effectively, whether that's around how we're thinking about ad spend or how we're thinking about understanding polling. Technology and data should be a part of every every key decision the DNC is making. Nell, my predecessor, Nell Thomas, um, our previous CTO, made tremendous strides in, I think, proving the, the utility of technology and the utility of data to more and more parts of the DNC. And that's what I've been 
just super focused on expanding out even more through this year. So we've been working increasingly more with more and more departments across DNC to both apply some of the learnings from 2022 in a way that is forward-looking, in a way that data can help power future decisions in a more ongoing basis. So it's incredibly important. We still have some some room to go on that, but I, it's it's a big part of what I view my role as, is helping to prove out that technology is not just this downstream group that helps turn out software based on a set of specs you throw over the wall, but actually we can be a helpful thought partner. We can be beneficial in giving information that that makes smarter decisions across the entire DNC. Um, and I think that's that's a lot of the continued legacy of Nell that I'm continuing on with right now um, and that my team is continuing on with. Catherine Tarzny is a deputy CTO. She's a former head of data and analytics, but this is a lot of the charter of her role here at the DNC is, is, is making tech and data more a core part of decision-making across the team. When you look outside at, at the political tech innovations that are happening, any that you want to highlight that are that you feel are hopeful about our future in tech kind of broadly, or, and are there any gaps that you would love to see someone tackle? <laughs> yeah. I'm incredibly excited at a lot of the work that's happening around interchange of data. The way that we as the DNC are able to hold on to data to understand, hey, this this voter was a Kerry, Obama, Obama, Trump, Biden voter. And here's what all of the times we talked to this voter, here's what they said, and here's their sentiment, and here's what they believe. I think capturing data points from all these things is really, really important. So I think the more that the ecosystem and party infrastructure focuses on solving for data interchange between tools and between the DNC as the clearinghouse, I think the better the outcomes we're able to give. There's a lot of interesting ideas floating out there in in terms of how more data can flow more freely, whether that's through cloud native technologies or new startups in the space or some of our incumbents, including the DNC, really iterating on how we, how we work on those things. Data interchange is really important. When you're thinking of those organizations that are new, that are who, are you, who do you have in mind? Part of our leverage as an organization is when we are signing national contracts for for some of the campaigns we directly support, we're able to influence some of that by saying, hey, you've got to return your data in a way that's native to our database as part of the contract agreement. And I think what we found is most vendors out there, so kind of this generation of uh, voter contact tools, texting tools, email tools, organizing tools that are out there are already thinking in terms of data connectivity rather than data silos, which is, I think, descriptive of a lot of kind of past generations of democratic tech. So I think it's not just any single organization, but I think broadly, like new vendors in this space are thinking about this from the start, which is is incredibly exciting. We're doing what we can to help foster that. From an infrastructure perspective, there's definitely a lot of room out there for how this data flows together. DDX being kind of a, a newer addition to our ecosystem that, that's thinking really deeply about this, this problem. We work very closely with DDX from our side as well. What about gaps? What what do you think is missing that you wish someone would tackle or you would like to tackle yourself? One of the things that um, has been true of of how democratic campaigns have run for many decades now is a model of door knocking, of taking organizers who are pulling in volunteers who go out and knock on doors and try to try to understand what is a voter likely to do. I think we as a party have to evolve with how communities talk to each other, how people interact with each other. 
that starts to get into areas beyond, I think traditionally what we found a lot of electoral success in. So part of that is how can technology support understanding how people talk to each other online or how people on social media are consuming content or generating content that might be useful for sharing the message of of great campaigns and great candidates out there. We're really interested in within DNC Tech Now is how how are new vendors approaching these really hard problems around how communities interact, how they talk, and how that can be leveraged for campaigns as well. What would you do if suddenly the tech operation could have a billion dollars to work with? <laughs> we would probably go out and try to buy as much data that other people are selling that's beneficial for... Only data, not 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 software? Should the a- act blues of the world... I mean, you mentioned a whole lot of external things. Should this all be brought together under one roof at some point within the party or not? I don't know that it should. I, for, I mean, for if resources weren't the constraint, if you were to bring a lot of the apparatus like Act Blue in house or a lot of things that, that help drive campaigns, there would be a potential risk of further siloing. One of the benefits of what many, many vendors in the space do is that they serve not just DNC, but they serve nonprofits out there so that people that are working on solving problems through, whether it's through nonprofits or working with Planned Parenthood or working with... Um, the regulatory issue is a, is a tricky one. Yeah. Yeah. The regu- regulatory issue, is a, it, it's a really tricky one. And it would lead to basically creating parallel parallel solutions in a, in a way that's nonsensical. And I, I think it also changes some of the incentive structure around this stuff where I think it would be there's there's benefits to how some of these organizations are running today. I think even if we went out and, and bought a bunch of organizations, I, I know that there's a lot we would want to change in terms of the overall structure. There's a lot of benefit to doing that. That said, I think there's a lot of really interesting software tools out there that are kind of adjacent and and maybe are a little bit closer to what the DNC does. I think we would uh, we would take a very hard look at. But um, I think for me, it's it's about how do we how do we at the end of the day like not not try to reach beyond what DNC has set as a our kind of our defined scope, but how do we do those things really better? How do we how do we provide just the best assets for, for campaigns, for state parties, for our sister committees to use to to help win elections? What should I have asked you that I haven't? I thought you might ask me what what am I most scared of? What am I most worried about? What are you most scared of? What are you most worried about? I believe we have a technology advantage today over the Republican Party. However, history shows that that advantage can be very fleeting. Um, If you look back at on a long enough trend line, I think the deficiencies in the early 2000s that led to incredible advancements in the run-up to President Obama's campaign in 2008 and in moving beyond that into 2016, where Real data and technology deficiencies were a big problem for the Clinton campaign. And I think falling back into that trap where we underinvest or we don't innovate as a party will lead us back into a place where data or technology might be part of the reason that a presidential election is decided not for us, but against us. The thing I worry about is just um I think we've 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 done some very good things. And I think we have some 
unique structural advantages right now, but those things can be very fleeting. So I, I worry about not moving fast enough. I worry about not innovating enough. I worry about underfunding in, in the space in the next four or six years. There appears to be some kind of revolution happening with artificial intelligence applications. Do you think that there's a role related to the DNC that can use any of those ideas or technologies that are out there or iterations of them that are coming? Certainly on a long enough time horizon, I think that's the case. I think if you look at solutions like chat GPT now, there are some, there are some deficiencies. There are some, some real gaps and the nature of politics is that it's a very complex space with a lot of intricacies to how you describe and think about and rationalize messaging, for example, that I think AI will be slower to catch up to in politics than it might be in other industries. But same time, certainly like AI will be, I would predict in 10 years, it's going to be deployed all across technology applications for for how we're using technology at the DNC and, and politics in general. We think a lot about AI. We think a lot about ethics of AI internally at DNC and inside the DNC tech team. We're both looking at it, but we're also cautious about it. Uh, we're also thinking a lot about ways it could be potentially misused in a way that could hurt what we are trying to build here. I mean, there are some folks, let's just say on the other side, whose, whose strictures around ethics are lower and who might be tempted to make fake videos deep fakes or whatever you might call of some politician doing something and drop it with no time to figure out that it was fake. Or you could imagine any number of dirty tricks, uh, October surprises, hard to figure out messages that use tech to mislead, as well as just this whole disinformation economy that's out there that we contend with. Any of that come into your purview or do you have any thoughts about it? Obviously, we worry a lot about misuses of, uh, or as emerging technology comes out, ways that um, are maybe very different from how we think about it being deployed against our campaigns or our candidates or party. That's a big part of why we are continually thinking about kind of areas of understanding and staying in front of this and and trying to mitigate those risks whenever possible. We have uh, a tremendous comms team who focuses a lot on kind of challenges of disinformation, misinformation, and ways to really proactively combat it. At the end of the day, I think the thing that is within our control is how do we really amplify our message in a way that can overpower whatever these kind of like um, areas of disinformation can and to get that get that message through. Well, I think you found yourself in a pretty interesting place. I I can see why you, the idea of it stuck in your head and you went over and now you're working away at it. Is this something you think you can do long term? Is this something that's a short stop? How do you think about that? I want to be in politics for a very, very, very long time from a kind of the application of technology. It's been an incredibly fun run. A lot of credit to the DNC tech team, a lot of whom have been here since before me. But similar to those on the team that have made a run of eight or nine years, that's what I am hoping to do as well. Hopefully that can be at the DNC for as long as possible. It's an incredibly satisfying world to be in. And for anyone listening out there, definitely encourage thinking hard about it in some of the same ways that the many of us at the DNC have. Well, it's always great to talk to somebody who seems to like their job and be interested in it. <laughs> and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me about it. Is there anything else you want to say? 
No, thank you so much for, for the time and the great conversation today. Look forward to chatting again. That was Arthur Thompson. He's at Democrats.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.